You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And you can find that on page 933 of the Chairback Bible in front of you. Uh, And if you don't have your own Bible, please feel free to take one of those home with you. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to your truth and guidance. Thank you, Father, for giving us guidance to be good and true servants to you, to honor one another by caring for one another, and to let us care for the needs of others before even our own needs. Thank you for Pastor Jeremy's preparation this week in Holy Spirit, we ask that you deliver your message through him to us today. And Lord, may you, may you be praised forever. May our praise and worship be acceptable to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Raleigh. One of the great challenges for churches committed 
to doctrinal faithfulness is that they can have this beautiful gospel clarity theologically while in practice have an ugly relational culture. It's so important, I, I want to say that again because I want to make sure you get it, that a great challenge for a church committed to doctrinal purity is when in practice there is no gospel culture resonating with its people. It could be the kind of church that you look at their statement of faith and you go, man, that looks good. And indeed, good doctrine is beautiful. But if you go there and you experience relationships that feel ugly, that's a big problem. See, if the gospel is defined as Christ's death for our sins, if the gospel is that we as undeserving sinners have been forgiven, then gospel culture would be the shared experience of sharing that Christ's salvation is for us. Christ died for our sins, that's gospel doctrine, the shared experience of enjoying Christ's death for sins together, communally, that's gospel culture. Now, maybe I already started in the deep end, and you're like, man, I'm glad you showed up at 5 a.m. and had three cups of coffee, but I'm just waking up, bro. Let me try to explain this to you in terms that maybe teenagers would appreciate. Say you went to summer camp hoping to find a special someone, teenagers, and you thought, yeah, I don't mind if I do find a little summer fling here at summer camp. And let's say it's a Christian camp and you're a Christian teenager. So you go and then you notice from a distance there's a person that makes your insides feel warm. And you go, yeah, boy, that one. And from a distance, you think, yeah. But then you actually have the nerve to go introduce yourself. And as you get close, you realize their language is filthy. They know every word in the book and they use every word in the book. And not only is that off-putting, they literally smell. They didn't know to wear deodorant. And, and then they smile and, and you're like, I guess your parents don't believe in toothbrushes because you clearly don't brush teeth. And all of a sudden you went from, oh yeah, to, oh no. Teenagers, that would be a picture of a church that has gospel doctrine on paper, but then actually when you get close, it smells. And what they say they believe doesn't actually relate, doesn't actually connect to how they behave. See, if we're really going to be a gospel-centered church, then the gospel has to work itself out in all ways of our life. The gospel actually isn't some little compartment that's supposed to take up one little slice of the pie of a church. The gospel's the whole pie. If you're here and you're a Christian, the gospel isn't something that just gets you into the Christian faith. It's not like the diving board that gets you into the pool and now that you're in the pool, you can swim in the depths of the great 
theology of the waters. This, the gospel is the whole pool. It's not the front door, it's the whole building. And the gospel should actually change the way we relate to one another. And what is so sad is when a church says, we've got gospel doctrine, we've got gospel doctrine, when they beat their chest like some gorilla, our gospel doctrine's so good, so strong, so beautiful. But when you go there, when you interact with the people, there's an ugly anti-gospel culture well, how is the church then to relate to one another? If there is not to be some disconnect between what they believe and how they actually treat each other, how is a church to care for one another? And how, how is a church especially to care for those that are vulnerable in the church? That is what Paul addresses in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 to 16. And that's where we're gonna spend our time this morning trying to figure out how does gospel doctrine connect to gospel culture. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to 1 Timothy 5? If you're new with us, the way we do sermons here is we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through that entire book of the Bible wanting to make sure whatever Paul says is what we say. Seeking to align the main idea of the text with the main idea of the sermon. And I'm convinced this morning, Paul wants Timothy to realize, here is the blueprint for a strong church, especially in the way the church should relate to one another. Gospel culture, Paul might say, it ought to be so palpable, the very tone, the vibe, the feel, there should be such a sense, a shared experience of Christ's death for sins that when you are a Christian, you come together, you find comfort and care in God's church. How then is that going to work itself out for us? Well, that's where we're going to walk through our text. Paul's got two big ideas. So the first two big ideas of the sermon will match Paul's, and then the third will be application and that's the map of the sermon. If you're wanting to know where we're going, three big ideas. Two are straight from Paul. Third is application. Jump in with me for this first big idea from Paul. Strong churches care well for one another. Strong churches care well for one another. I draw this from verses one and two. Look in the Bible so that you can see I didn't make it up. It's right there in the text. It's black and white. Paul giving Timothy expectations for how the church ought to be relating to one another. Timothy, you treat older men like your dad, younger men like your brother, older women like your mom, your younger women like your sister. The way one commentator puts it, the general principle is that Timothy should treat people in the church as he would his own family. Timothy, he wouldn't rebuke his own dad, so no, he might encourage him, that's what he's supposed to do. Hey, Timothy, you wouldn't be scandalous with your sister, so don't be scandalous with the younger women in the church. See, keep in mind, 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul was a younger pastor. In fact, young enough that some in the church, evidently, weren't too thrilled to have such a young buck preaching. So, so Timothy already had to get over this hump of people who go, hey, man, you should wait a decade or more before you start preaching to us because you, you're young and you know nothing. And so Paul wants to set young Timothy up for success. Don't let them look down on you for your youth, man. Instead, you need to show yourself to be a person who knows the gospel. That's why Paul makes it so clear, 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ died for sinners. 
Hey, Timothy, you also gotta be the kind of pastor who shows how anchored you are in God's word. That's why 1 Timothy 4.13, you have to read the word publicly. Let the people hear it. That will help them get confident in you. Also, as you preach, you need to get better. 1 Timothy 4.13, be the kind of guy who is serious about preaching and improve. That will win these people who think, he's so young, he doesn't know anything, I don't know if I should have to listen to this pastor. It's going to help win them over. That's Paul's heart for Timothy. Chapter 5, 1 and 2, then, what we're looking at helps Timothy realize the gospel informs relationships with one another. For while a church must have doctrinal faithfulness, that doctrinal faithfulness must work itself out in relationships with one another. Those relationships, Paul's saying, ought to feel like family. Now look, if you're here and you're like, look, pastor, my family's awful. Maybe you grew up in a family that's upside down from a good family and you, perhaps you're an adult and you're still processing through what it was like to be a abandoned or manipulated or abused or all those awful things. If, if you're here and you're like, the church is supposed to be like a family, that sounds awful. Understand, Paul's heart is not that the church would resemble broken families, but that the church would be a strong model of a healthy family, a family where serving one another is the norm, a, a family where you don't sit and go, hey, what can you give me today? But you might say, how can I give to you? A family that's unselfish and kind and caring. The, if you grew up in a wrong kind of family, a poor family, and it troubles you, know that Paul's heart isn't that the church would resemble the brokenness of your family. Instead, the church could be a new kind of family that rejuvenates your idea of what a poor family was. Paul explaining then, here's how I want you treating the church, Timothy, and for us we see expectations and obligations for how members of Mill Creek ought to relate to one another. We ought not treat older men with rebuke. We ought to encourage older men. We ought to treat younger men like brothers. Older women as our mothers. Younger women as sisters. Younger women, you should be treated with purity, not ever scandalously related to. That's how a church ought to treat one another. Here's the point then from verse one and two. I'd love for you to write this down. Gospel culture leads us to respectfully relate in the church. True, beautiful, doctrinal faithfulness actually should work itself out in gospel relationships. There ought to be a shared experience as we come together, a palpable sense that Christ's death for undeserving sinners is beautiful and worth celebrating together. Gospel culture leads us to respectfully relate. See, it'd be like this. If your family was chosen to be on a game show and you showed up at that game show and you were told, hey, the real grand prize of this game show, if you, like, if you, if you do everything right, your family will, will win an all-expenses-paid trip to fill-in-the-blank with the best place to go. Seven Mile Beach at Grand Cayman. Heard it was awesome. Maybe it's Hawaii. I don't care. Wherever you want to go, you're going to get an all-expenses-paid trip and make it as long as you want. Make it three weeks if you like. You're going to get there. 
So you and your family, you play the game show, and let's say you win, okay? You won the game show, you're getting the celebration, the crowd goes wild, the balloons and the confetti come down, and, and your whole family's celebrating and you're rejoicing because you're going to get to go to Hawaii for three weeks or whatever it is, and in fact, they upgraded your flight, you're going to go first class. Good grief, you can even bring a preacher if you like with you, and it's just everybody's happy, okay? It's like, yes, we, got, we won, we won, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful? How goofy would it be if as everybody's celebrating and patting each other on the back? Man, we got this trip. We didn't think we'd get in it. Whatever, whatever. Well, how, how weird would it be if you were standing there with your arms crossed, looking really upset at everybody and saying, you didn't do very good. If you started finger wagging at some of your family members saying, hey, you missed a question here and there. I'm really disappointed in you. I thought you would bring your A game. Man, this is an important game show. We want it to win. Next time we're on a game show, you better do better. You're, you're feeling like, man, I earned my, my spot on this trip, but you didn't earn it. How weird would that be? And, and as goofy as an illustration as that is, I mean, it actually is a picture of what happens too often at a church. We're, 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 we're all together. We won. If you're in Christ, you didn't just win a three-week trip to vacation in Hawaii, okay? Now, you can talk to me at this part if you like. You, you know you got something better in Hawaii coming if you're in Christ? Okay, good. Okay, Hawaii today will not hold the candle to where we get to be in eternity a thousand years from now. Okay, in case you didn't know, a thousand years from now, nobody's going to be standing around going, I just really wish I would have taken a trip to Hawaii a thousand years ago when it was the old heavens and the old earth because I'm just so worried about how beautiful it was and I wouldn't be able to experience that today. Nobody's going to say that. It's in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be a thousand times better than anything you've ever seen. The, the true and better Hawaii will be there. Oh, and as it turns out, you have infinity years to go visit. So if you find yourself... 10,000 years into eternity, you're like, man, I just never made it to Hawaii. It's okay. You still got time. If you're in your old age now and you're just thinking, man, I was really hoping to be able to go see something before the end, in eternity, you got time to go see it. See, if Brennan Manning is right, that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread, if he's right, then a Sunday morning worship service ought to be a wonderful celebration where we all come in saying, I starve to death and I found food. And for those who come in and don't know Christ, we ought to be saying, the bread of life. There's an all-you-can-eat buffet of Jesus Christ here for you. Come! Which is the antithesis of a church that would fold its arm and wag its finger at you and say, bad, 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 bad. What's wrong with you? Why don't you try harder? Man, we're all undeserving sinners. All of us undeserving sinners who have been given the bread of life. We are not going to starve to death, friends. We have Christ. The gospel then leads us to respectfully relate to one another, sharing the incredible and free gift of God's grace. Strong churches, according to Paul's blueprint, must care for one another. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. 
gospel roots ought to actually lead to gospel fruit. If you're a guest with us, you're thinking, I don't know, maybe Mill Creek will be the church I make home. Maybe it's not going to be the church I make home. One way to evaluate a church is, does its doctrine actually work itself out in the way that the church relates to one another? Go talk to a few of our members. Are they gospel people? Is there a palpable sense of God's great grace and love extended to us in the mercy of Jesus Christ? So strong churches must care well for one another. How then are strong churches to care for its widows? How should the Ephesian church relate to those in their community who are so vulnerable? That's where Paul turns his attention next. Move with me to our second big idea. Strong churches care well for its widows. Strong churches care well for widows. I draw this from verses 3 to 16. Look at verse 3. We find Paul directing Timothy, honor widows. From the text, you might notice, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, honor widows who are truly widows, what, what in the world does Paul think? Does he think that Ethel left Fred in the basement and hadn't let him get out for a while and is not even feeding him? So she's, she seems like she's a widow, but she's not truly a widow because she got her husband in the basement. That was a joke, clearly. Glad you guys know that now. No, in Ephesus, it wasn't that there were some women who were pretending to be widows but really still had a husband on the side. Instead, what Paul's doing and what he's doing in this entire section is parsing out the difference between those widows who actually still have access to food, have access to clothing, have access to shelter with those widows who have no support structure. See, again, 2,000 years ago, a widow wasn't able to go get a job a widow wasn't able to get any support from the government. And so, while a widow were, could still work and create some income, a widow was dependent on the community around to care for her. And what Paul's saying, look, there's going to be widows in the church of Ephesus there, and so you need to take a, evaluate, evaluate the members there in the Eph Ephesus church to determine which widows have no one else. Timothy, you need to care for them as a church, organizationally, whereas those widows who do have a support structure already allow that support structure to care for them. That's what Paul's explaining. Verse four, widows without children or grandchildren, they need help. Verse five, that allows the church to focus on true widows who have their hopes set on God. Verse six, pray regularly, are not self-indulgent. Two reasons why, verse four, one reason why the church is to do this is so that the widow's children and grandchildren can actually care for her in the same way she cared for them when they were growing up. A second reason why the church is to care for widows, end of verse four, because caring for widows is pleasing in the sight of God. Hey, just so you know, church, if you've cared for a widow, that's pleasing in the sight of God. Maybe you've cared for a widowed parent who's gone. Maybe there's some other widow that you've cared for. That was pleasing to the sight of God. It is pleasing when you care for widows. Know that. Like Ruth, that Old Testament character in an Old Testament book who was widowed herself and yet took care of her aged mother-in-law named Naomi, or like Boaz later on in that same book who ended up taking care of Ruth and Naomi. Church, we ought to be the kind of 
community that cares for widows in our church. Verse 7 is Paul's purpose. In the words of one commentator, Paul's major concern is to avoid reproach on the church. For just as God's salvation has been offered to all who are poor and powerless, so the church should offer care for her poor and powerless. Verse 8, continuing Paul's argument here, aimed at men and leaders of the household, if you don't care for widows that are in your community, you are awful despicable. Awful and despicable. In, in uh, modern church language, Paul's using language that seems to indicate you ought to be church disciplined, men. If, if you've got a widow in some relationship to you and you will not care for your own family, that's worse than being an unbeliever. Paul would kick you out of the church if he knew that. And realize, realize, church, this kind of care for widows, it didn't just show up in 1 Timothy. It's been there throughout the Old Testament. In fact, I, I really enjoy listening to Tim Keller's sermons, and I guess as an aside, my wife, she likes listening to Tim Keller's sermons, even though he's passed, she's convinced he's the best preacher she's ever heard, and that's fine, because he is really good. Um, Keller mentions this concept called the quartet of the vulnerable, and I don't think he coined the term, I think it was somebody else, but he was mentioning the quartet of the vulnerable. That's the first place I heard it. Um, think about the Old Testament, because there's four groups in the Old Testament that are considered the quartet of the vulnerable. Those of you who are familiar with your Bible, especially the Old Testament, can you think of the four people, the four groups in the Old Testament who are the most vulnerable that God over and over and over again, especially with his people Israel, says, you have to care for these types of people. Can you think of the quartet? Uh, of course, widows, because that's who we're talking about here. Orphans, good. The immigrant and the poor. Paul explaining to Timothy, hey church, you need to care for widows in your church is not a new or alien idea. This is summary of the Old Testament. Be the kind of church that cares for widows and orphans. According to Towner, Paul here taps into the rich tradition of God's special care for widows and orphans. Wanting to make sure then that gospel doctrine actually creates a gospel culture where people would say the truth of God's undeserved mercy, it actually works itself out in the way we relate to one another. Verse 9 then, there's some details. Timothy was to enroll the vulnerable widows over 60 years old. These widows who get enrolled must meet the qualifications there in 9b through 10, which includes being older, maritally faithful. They were one-women men. They were known for their good deeds. And evidently, there was some list. Timothy was to keep some list that had these widows named. Who is the church actually supposed to care for? Put them on a list. Make sure they get the care they need. Verse 11, again, here's who not to put on that list. Younger widows. Evidently, Paul saw that younger widows are tempted to abandon their faith. In part by being idlers, gossips, and busybodies. When I read this, I thought, man, Paul is really down on young widows. But for some reason, he saw verse 15, young widows have already strayed after Satan. How sad. 
But interpreting this second paragraph actually is a real doozy because you might notice that verse 3 and verse 9 have different verbs. Uh, verse 3 is honor. Would you say honor? One, two, three. Honor. And do you notice in verse 9 it starts with a different verb? It's enroll. Can you say enroll? One, two, three. Enroll. In, in case you, you didn't pass uh, first grade, uh, what's alike and what's different, those are two different verbs. Honor and roll, which leads some people to say, oh, we have to do two things. We have to honor, uh, financially support widows who have nobody else, and we have to put these different kinds of widows on a list. And uh, I found out during my study, you maybe already knew this, so you're smart and sophisticated, I didn't, that this is where the Catholic Church gets the ideas of nuns and convents. This is the, the place. Uh, they decided uh, you have to enroll widows on a list, and so we're going to make them nuns. And they're going to be married to Jesus. And then uh, they decided, well, it shouldn't be 60. Uh, I mean, that's what the text says, but let's make it 40. And then they make it 18. So that's where Catholic nuns came from, if you care. I see many of us don't. But if you want more, I'm happy to explain more later on. I'd be happy. And I don't plan on having an order of widows at Mill Creek. We don't plan on starting a convent out here. If you think we should, I'm happy to debate that with you. Um, for now, though, what I'm wanting to make sure you see is contrary to Catholics, I actually don't think the honor and enroll verbs are trying to do two different things. And, and you can disagree with me. I think honor and enroll are Paul saying two ideas that are one thing. And that one thing is, church, you need to care well for widows who are truly widows. If you're gonna lead the church, and if gospel doctrine is gonna actually create a gospel culture, if there's gonna be a shared experience of Christ's death for undeserving sinners, then you've gotta care for widows in the church who have nobody else. And I think we see that with a summary verse bringing us to the end of this passage. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them and let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Again, like Ruth cared for Naomi, if, if there's a widow in our midst who's already being cared for, then the church organizationally doesn't need to care for her too. She doesn't need double benefit. Rather, let the church care for those who have nobody else while those who are already caring continue. Timothy, here are the expectations and obligations to care for widows in your church. Here's how gospel doctrine cares for those who are truly vulnerable. Here then is the point. I'd love for you to write this down. Gospel culture requires us to care for our widows. Gospel culture requires us, Mill Creek, any Mill Creek members who are widows, we must care for them. That's what Paul's saying. What is more, we understand, for any of us who have widows in our families, we must take care of them. Men, if you have some widow in your family or extended family, Paul seems to expect you to take responsibility for them. And that is good and pleasing to the Lord, not to mention it's a great testimony to a watching world. And the gospel motivation, of course, because this isn't just try harder, Mill Creek. This isn't, man, I came in and I have, I have, I'm only working a few days a week, so I have a lot of extra time. Where else should I give it? Because I was hoping to be able to give my time. I'll, I'll start caring for widows too. That's not the way this operates. No, everybody's got a full plate. Everybody's got things to do. But, but Paul's heart is when the gospel changes you, when Christ's death for sin roots down into your heart, it changes your heart. And just like Christ had all this mercy for us as undeserving people, us, those, all of us who were poor and powerless, so it changes our hearts and helps us, makes us, and 
motivates us to want to care for those who are poor and powerless in our community. This doesn't end up being an extra to-do. This is a get-to-do. This is a, of course I want to care for widows. Look how you cared for me. That's how gospel doctrine changes hearts and gives us a gospel culture. We are to follow Christ's initiative and sacrificial love to have initiative and sacrificial love for the widows in our church. So then, if you've tracked with me and you've seen that we are to care well for one another, and if you're with me that strong churches care for their widows, what does that look like for Mill Creek today? More broadly, what does it look like to care for other vulnerable groups in our church? That brings us to our third and final big idea. Here is where this sermon is building. If you're taking notes, write this down. Strong churches must care for the vulnerable. Or to be more clear, strong churches must care for the vulnerable in their church. This is what strong churches do. See, like the church in Ephesus, Mill Creek, we ought to stand out in this community of Shawnee by having a reputation for being the kind of people who please God by deeply and sacrificially caring for the poor and powerless in our church. And this includes widows who are part of our church, but we must recognize that in addition to widows, we ought to be vigilant to care for orphans and immigrants and the poor among us. And in fact, in the New Testament, the quartet of the vulnerable has another demographic added to it, and it's those who are imprisoned, Hebrews 13.3. We're to care for those imprisoned. Context indicating it's those who are imprisoned particularly for their faith in Christ. But we as a church, we are called to care for Christians who are in prison. Even more broadly, we might add other uniques of cultural vulnerability, like those in our church who have special needs. If you're in our church with special needs, we ought to care for you. Or for those precious parents who have precious children with special needs. Church, do you know how many parents have special need children and are unable to attend worship services regularly? The stats are so sad, and it's not because they don't want to be here. Parents with special needs have unique vulnerabilities. We need to care for those Mill Creekers who are in this situation. We also would do well to consider those who are disabled, those who are homebound, those who are in assisted living facilities. I think it'd be good for us, church, to care for Mill Creek members who are single parents. They have unique challenges, as well as those who struggle silently with chronic pain or long-lasting sickness. And not unlike Paul in his time, it will take wisdom to properly parse through all the types of people that Mill Creek needs to offer care to. And we all need discernment and courage to determine how we as families in the church can come alongside our fellow church members who are experiencing unique vulnerabilities. But just like in the days of Paul and Timothy, high ethical standards actually advance the gospel. And what was true for them is still true for us. Christ's powerful gospel does create a powerful gospel culture where Christ's people care for each other. We ought to be the kind of church that does care for one another. And there are some days when you show up and you feel like I barely drug myself here and you need somebody to lean on. 
And other days you show up and some people need to lean on you. And the gospel actually ought to work itself out in the way we care for each other. It's a powerful gospel witness to our watching world. Here then is the sermon in a sentence. It's what I've been arguing for all morning. Strong churches must have a strong reputation to care, especially for their vulnerable. If we're going to follow Paul's blueprint for a strong church, then we must have a strong reputation. We must care well for our vulnerable Mill Creek. Okay, pastor, but, but in what ways are these groups that you've mentioned vulnerable? Because in the text, it seems to indicate that those widows who are vulnerable, like they have no food. They don't know where they're sleeping that night. They may lack some clothing. So if they're in abject vulnerability, what kind of ways are you talking that our people are vulnerable? And I certainly can appreciate that those Folks who I've listed or perhaps others that I've neglected, there may be some vulnerabilities, but my guess is it's not food. I mean, if you're going to sleep hungry and you need food, by all means, tell us. We care. We want to provide. But I do grant the vulnerability is different. But I think a big vulnerability that our people have who are in these categories would be the vulnerability of not being able to come regularly and Feast on Christ's word sang and read and seen in the ordinances and prayed and preached. And I think some who are vulnerable, they are spiritually hungry because the hurdles to make it on a Sunday morning are too high. But that may not be the only hurdle for those who are vulnerable. I think a second way that people can be vulnerable is they may make it here, but they don't actually get that community they're looking for. And so they're relationally hungry as well. And that's why Mill Creek, we want to care well for one another by being the kind of church that helps remove the hurdles that help somebody who's struggling get here, but also to begin to connect with those who are here to try to create community in unique and powerful ways. So what does this look like, pastor? While the elders and the staff are committed to knowing and caring for all who are vulnerable, in part by keeping lists and checking in, we pray for those of you who are our vulnerable members, we realize that we have room to improve in mobilizing our church to do that on their own. See, this touches on some broader areas of improvement that I'm working on and our team is working on, but I'm afraid that one of the unintentional mistakes that I've made and I have led our team to make is that care often seems to be top-down. And some of you Mill Creek members might be thinking, man, I want to care, I want to help, I want to get in the game. And so maybe you come ask me and you, you don't hear back from me or you, you find yourself going, man, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get in the game, but I guess, I guess the staff writes stuff down and I guess they'll take care of it. And for anyone here then who feels like, man, I wanted to help care for the vulnerable and I, I reached out to you, pastor, but I don't know how to do that. I just want to apologize and say we're trying to change that because I think so much of the care for the vulnerable, it doesn't have to be top down. It can be bottom up. So if you're here right now and you look around and you think, okay, that's, that's a Mill Creek person and I know them and I, I know that they're, 
they fit one of those categories Pastor Jeremy mentioned, or they fit some other category that you know they're vulnerable in some unique ways. I am blessing you. The elders and I are saying, yes, please, go. Take the initiative to reach out to somebody and say, hey, I want to care for you. And you don't need some special dispensation email from me to be able to do that. And then I'm sorry for the ways that I made you think you might. We want to mobilize some volunteer deacons to help us do some of this caring. Please come talk to me if you're interested. But we are going to have to mobilize Mill Creek members to care well for one another. See, gospel culture, as we've talked about here, would mean that more often than not, Mill Creek members, you come here on a Sunday morning not thinking to yourself, how am I going to get served? But gospel culture would change you so that you show up here and you would go, man, how can I serve others? How can I care this week for one other person? When Jesus spoke the truth when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. As Paul explained, members are obligated and expected to care for one another. And our heart then is to respond like the early church did in Acts chapter 6 to make sure all our widows are getting the appropriate care they need. As a church, we want to be faithful to James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We need to rally then, church. Let's rally around our widows. Let's rally around our vulnerable. And the way we do this is by remembering how Christ rallied around us. When we were vulnerable, when we were alone, when we needed comfort, Christ came and he gave comfort and so many of you who are vulnerable all week long, you realize I need comfort that only Christ can provide. And here, in this sort of moment as the church gathers every week, you get balm for your weary souls and you find comfort. And for those of you who don't realize the kind of comfort that brings, be the person who realizes, ah, those vulnerable in our community, I want to extend comfort to them. And the reason we're willing to do this, church, the reason we press on is because we are looking forward to the day. We have a hope that one day we will be with Christ forever and we will have the ultimate comfort we long for. And on that day, our faith will be made sight. On that day, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be forever free from all sin and shame. This fallen world, even fallen Hawaii, as beautiful as it is, it'll be gone and all the death and the decay and the sin and the suffering and widows and vulnerable and orphans and mistreated and the hungry, they will, be, they will be redeemed. Those who are in Christ will be filled and overflowing. And one, and one day we will get to celebrate together and we will sing to our king the hymn of heaven and it is far greater than anything we can ask or think. And so let that day and what Christ has accomplished for you motivate you to faithfully care for our vulnerable. In so doing, it's a beautiful picture to a watching world and it is pleasing to our God and Savior. Will you pray with me now as we ask God to accomplish this? Father, I we pray that you would allow the gospel doctrine to work itself out in gospel culture. We pray we would be the kind of people who reflect in behavior what we believe. 
Father, I pray for those who are vulnerable, those who fall into some of these categories we've named and even those categories that we've not named. Would you please care for them and mobilize Mill Creekers to care well? Lord, for those here who don't know you, I pray, Spirit, you would save. And you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.